Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm your host, Dipo Fallion. South Africa was the world's biggest exporter of gold just over a decade ago. And it had been that way since the 1800s, when huge deposits were discovered just outside of Johannesburg. That discovery, in part, even led to war between the Boer Republics and the British. Now skip forward to the 21st century, and the industry has all but collapsed. From that has emerged a criminal economy of illegal gold miners called the Zamazamas, translated into English from Zulu as those who strive. But this literal criminal underworld is extremely dangerous. And only a week or so ago, President Cyril Ramaphosa ordered thousands of military personnel to eradicate it. But how? And can this practice ever realistically be brought to an end? Commander Grief is a journalist who's had work published in the New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Guardian, amongst many others. He's dug into all of this, and he joins me now in the bunker. Hi, Kimon. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, so let's start with a bit of wider context here. Historically, how vital is gold to South Africa? Gold sort of formed the basis of the South African economy. Before the discovery of gold, South Africa's main sort of function in the global economy was as a, as a revictualing station for uh, trade ships traveling to the east to get spices. That's where Cape Town, where I'm from, uh, began as a, as a sort of settler project. But until the late 19th century, South Africa's contribution to the global economy was small and international investment in South Africa was small. This changed, well, slightly before that with the discovery of diamonds and, um, and then the discovery of gold towards the end of the 19th century and uh, attracted massive investment and formed the basis of the entire economy into the early 19th century and onwards. And in addition to being the primary source of foreign exchange, also spurred the development of massive supportive industries, uh, manufacturing and so on. So up until toward the end of apartheid, gold was the bedrock of everything economic in South Africa, to put it sort of crudely. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned that it's very much sort of the bedrock of South Africa's economy at the time. I mean, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that 40% of all the gold that's ever been mined came from South Africa. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty incredible statistic. It's huge. And it was probably a larger proportion because production has tailed off so dramatically in South Africa. We have the largest deposits of gold in the world still. And the thing about South African gold is that it's a huge deposit, but it's a very low grade. And so it was only economically feasible for South Africa's gold mining industry to run at a profit because of the circumstances of South Africa, which was the availability of cheap black labor. That's what the industry depended upon. And with anywhere else in the world, historians have argued quite persuasively, had a deposit of this size and this poor grade been discovered, it would have been very difficult to mobilize the labor required to get that gold out of the ground. And so beside underpinning South Africa's economic history, gold really explains a lot of South Africa's social history, including the system of apartheid, which grew out of the control of labor and migrants and can be traced back in many ways to, to the mining system and, and migrant labor that, that was necessary to, to run the whole business. Yeah, and, and you mentioned this drop-off. Why have we seen this industry uh, sort of collapse? You know, I know these mines are famously difficult to operate. Yeah, so they're, they're monstrously capital intensive. So depending on the price of gold, that's one input. 
uh, it can be more or less feasible to to go down. We're talking about mines that are one, two, uh, up to three kilometers deep. Another factor is the cost of labor. And toward the end of apartheid, when South Africa finally allowed black unions to form, uh, they organized for higher wages. They were paid exceptionally poorly. Actually, in you know controlling for inflation, their wages remained static for almost three decades, which is crazy considering that production went up. It sort of defies the laws of economic gravity. And also toward the end of the 80s, South Africa was transitioning away from the apartheid system and global investors were, I think, wary about the course that South Africa would take as a post-colonial society. So there was a drop in the gold price at around that time. The labor movement was stronger. Investors were wary. And the easy-to-access gold seams had been mined out. So I think there's a sort of convergence of factors that meant that it wasn't as appealing a bet to make. Uh, from the perspective of investors, gold mining is a very big bet that pays off quite slowly. So people have to put down large amounts of money to sink new shafts that may take 10, 15 years to, to even break even. So combination of those forces, I suppose, led to a very rapid decline in South Africa's gold output. Since the end of apartheid, there have been other factors because of the sort of political valence of mining in South Africa, something that contributed so directly and so visibly to the apartheid project, to the dispossession of black people, to the absurd income inequality that we still see in South Africa today. There has been some political imperative to, to rectify that. And, and so the policy environment for mining has become a little less friendly to foreign capital. And people in the mining industry argue that this is against the interests of the whole country. And it's a complicated backwater that we could probably discuss more. But in short, the policy environment has become a little more hostile to the kinds of investment that are required still to to get this fine grade ore out of the ground and, and turn it into gold. Yeah. And, and you mentioned this sort of price collapse, which happened in 1997. And According to the National Union of Mine Workers, about 170,000 miners in South Africa lost their jobs, they lost their livelihoods. How big of an impact was that for so many people? Well, there have been several crashes. I mean, that, that's the crazy thing about gold. Uh, since the 1980s, gold was something that could be bet on on the market and, and became quite a volatile commodity. Before that, it was bought by reserve banks and there was a gold standard and there was a standard price for gold. And so there have been several bust cycles where the price has tumbled and mines that used to be able to employ X number of workers had to shrink their workforce. So this happened in the late 80s, that happened in the 90s, as you pointed out. And the impact on workers was devastating. Many mining towns in South Africa exist in areas where there's not much economic diversification. And so what you have is a sudden mass layoff of jobs, few alternative options, and in many cases, people who really were only there because of the gold industry, who were brought in as laborers, not only from across South Africa, but from across the Southern African subcontinent, really, from Zimbabwe, from Lesotho, from Mozambique, from Zambia, from Malawi, uh, something that the South African mining industry invested hugely in throughout the 20th century and even before was mobilizing labor from further and further away so that they could keep the prices that they paid low. 
South Africa's Chamber of Mines had a recruiting agency that built railway networks and road networks up into Southern Africa with the express purpose of bringing people down to work on the mines. And so when this industry collapsed or whenever it went through a, a layoff cycle and, and over time these became more and more severe, you ended up with thousands and thousands and thousands of people in these small towns without much else to do. And there was still gold in the ground. And uh, I think those two factors combined in a very predictable fashion with the benefit of hindsight to lead to the situation that we have today where people go underground into these often abandoned mine shafts and, and get the gold that they can uh, illegally and at great risk. You've explained sort of the dynamics at play that led to this illegal mining network starting. Can you just explain to us sort of how it actually works? Yeah, wow, where to start? Um, basically, wherever there's gold left over in South Africa, whether that's deep underground in abandoned mine shafts that can extend for, you know, dozens and dozens of kilometers per shaft. Uh, it's a vertical shaft that'll run a kilometer or two or deeper. And then these horizontal shafts that branch out and then have been abandoned in many cases by the mining industry. One form it takes is people climb down there by hand or get lowered down by ropes or some other way gain access to this derelict tunnel network and establish themselves and go and mine, often by hand or with jackhammers. Often the mining industry, the mining companies left behind these kind of support pillars, these structures that had gold-bearing ore in them, but that were necessary to keep the roof up. In a system with very little central organization, with high informality, high criminality, there's no real incentive to continue to do that. And so in some cases, the miners have mined out these support shafts. And that's one contributing factor to the mine collapses that have happened and will continue to happen where dozens, scores of Zamazamas get killed. Another place that gold remains is at the surface. When they broke down gold processing plants, there would be gold ore that would still be around and that would settle into deep places. And so there's a whole separate sort of sub-industry of Zamazamas who are mining for gold at the surface, almost like gold panners or remining mine dumps. Nobody knows how many there are, but the best estimates is that there's thousands and thousands and thousands. In the town of Valcom, where I reported the New Yorker piece, it was estimated that a few years ago there were 5,000 or more men living underground and just as many at the surface. Um, and that's in one town. So you can scale it up and imagine, you know, dozens of thousands of people eking gold out from the landscape. From there, there's a investigators refer to it as like a pyramid structure. So at the base, a, a large number of people engaged in the very, very onerous and physically taxing work of mining the gold. And above them, various levels of buyers, um, logisticians, people who provide food for them underground, uh, people who establish protection rackets to police the gold shafts or the areas where people are mining. And then a critical series of intermediaries who gather the gold that's been mined and launder it into the legal gold supply chain. Because ultimately, all of this gold needs to end up somewhere. And ultimately, it needs money to flow down to make it worth the while of some desperado at the bottom to risk his life to swing down into a two-kilometer deep mine shaft. 
And so at the top, it's uh, white-collar crime, it's international trafficking, it's money laundering, and fairly elaborate and sophisticated tax dodges, uh, a whole series of maneuvers that are necessary to take gold from Zamazamas and have it end up in the gold markets of Dubai, which is where most of it ends up. Um, enormously complicated and sophisticated syndicate-level stuff sitting on top of this industry and sort of facilitating it. But at the base, as it was during the apartheid days, perhaps in some ways worse. I mean, I don't know who would decide on that. But there's a base layer of exploited black African workers digging gold out of the ground. And so something strange is that as much has changed, there's something quite resonant back into the past where in some ways this industry is acting kind of exactly as it always has. You sort of touched on it briefly just then, but, you know, this is an incredibly dangerous procedure for many of these Amazamas. Uh, can you describe what kind of conditions most of them are working in? Yeah, so if we talk about the underground, uh, I spent months and months and months trying to be able to imagine this, and I'm still not sure that I actually am. But there are holes in the ground, you know, 20 meters in diameter, that once held enormous cages and transport elevators that would rush dozens and dozens of mine workers deep into the earth at great speed to do their shifts and have now been abandoned and dismantled. Uh, one shaft that I visited, the headgear was demolished, so it's just a hole in the ground. And you can peer over the edge if you're brave and realize that it drops for 1,600 meters. Inside that shaft is a frame of giant steel beams that used to hold the elevator and some frayed ropes at the top attached to one of the beams that men are climbing hand over hand down. At a certain level, maybe a kilometer below ground, there will be a opening that the Zamas know leads distantly to a productive seam of gold. And so they'll They'll, they'll walk in. Um, these are tunnels that are exceptionally hot. The deeper into the earth you go, the hotter it gets. It was only possible to mine at that kind of depth by establishing elaborate uh, cooling systems and ventilation. None of that still operates. So there's a cloying heat. It's 45 degrees in some places, some places even hotter. It's humid. It's dark. The roofs have caved in in many places. Um, the pictures that I've been shown down there are nightmarish. I didn't go down. I don't think that it would be a sane thing to do. Um, I don't think that there would be a way to justify doing that. And so there's pictures of boulders the size of uh, Volkswagen beetles uh, that have fallen and crushed people. Uh, methane accumulates underground. And so methane explosions are common. It can accumulate at concentrations that can be detonated by a strike of a match or even by the wrong kind of rock striking the wrong kind of rock and setting off a spark. Um, there's carbon monoxide that sinks down there, which is invisible and odorless, and so people just asphyxiate in the tunnels. That's just all the physical dangers. It's, it's the most apocalyptic, dystopian, uh, subterranean underworld that I think is imaginable. It's like something out of the most dystopian science fiction, but it's real. Then there's another entire layer of danger associated with the criminal organizations that have 
established themselves in this trade and muscled in. So there's machine gun wielding guards at the entrances. There are gunmen underground. There's booby traps that are set to explode if rivals or if mine security go down and interfere with the operation. Often an abandoned shaft can connect via a series of subterranean passages to a shaft that's still operational. And so the mining industry and the mining companies that are still operating in South Africa spend enormous amounts of money policing around the edges of their territory, deep, deep, deep underground. They have gun battles down there. Um, investigators have come across mass graves underground of people who were bludgeoned to death with hammers or have had their throats slit. So I, I could go on, but these are, these are the kinds of working conditions. Another thing is to get down that deep into the earth, people have to pay one of the syndicates to take them down um, or to allow them down. And because it's so expensive and so deep, they would stay down there not for days, not for weeks, but for months and sometimes years on end. So that means, you know, no sunlight. That means living in these dark, hellish tunnels for days and days and days and days and days on end and sending gold up to the surface in the hope that when you come out, you'll have a bunch of money and be able to change your circumstances. Uh, some of the cruelest stories that I heard were people who did that and sent their money up. And when they came up, they realized that their contact who had been receiving the funds for them had kind of fucked them over and made off with the money. And then they had to go back down and do it all again. Oh, well, I mean, you, you've, you've kind of laid out one of the most sort of dystopian pictures anyone can imagine. And, you know, this risk reward calculation that they're all making, I mean, how, even the best paid of these miners, you know, how much are they actually making in exchange for risking their lives in this way? I think it is possible to hit a good seam of gold and make a good payday and and leave with a substantial amount of money um, for someone who is from rural Zimbabwe and doesn't have a job or someone in South Africa who uh, went to school and watched their local economy collapse and now has very little prospect of being hired in other, anything other than like a menial, you know, unskilled kind of position. Um, I'd hesitate to put dollar or pound sums to it, but it is life-changing money for a few people. And that's enough of a carrot. I think equally or more important is the stick, which is people feeling as if they have no other option. And the allure of gold, you know, it's this mineral, which is beautiful and has a bunch of special properties, but it's only valuable because we've kind of collectively decided as humans that it's valuable. And there's something mythological about gold. People have gone looking for gold and risking their lives since gold became a valuable thing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, I should add that some people who get into this industry are trafficked in, and what proportion of them is hard to tell, but there are credibly sourced stories of people getting recruited, say, in the mountains of Lesotho with the promise of a job in a South African mine, um, paying a migrant smuggler to take them across and so on, and then arriving and getting given a pair of gumboots and taken to a hole and getting told, now you climb down, which I, again, can't really imagine what that must be like to do against one's free will. But yeah, suffice to say, there's thousands and thousands that do it because they feel like it's the best shot they have at changing their circumstances, which I think is quite a sad picture of 
the economic situation and the social situation in the area today. Yeah. And in the end, where does this illegally mined gold go? Their reports suggest that some of it is bought by corrupt gold companies and sold abroad. Um, so for countries like the UK, is there any way of the average person being able to tell whether the gold they receive is not illegally sourced? Well, one of the beautiful things about gold and one of the reasons that it has become a store of value is that you can melt it down endlessly into new forms. It doesn't tarnish. It kind of lasts forever. So you can have a gold coin and you can melt it down and turn it into a gold wedding band and then you can melt it down and mix it together with a bunch of other gold and turn it into whatever you like. There are extremely sophisticated sort of molecular DNA type processes that can be used to trace gold samples back to different areas of South Africa and sometimes even individual shafts. So in theory, you know, it's possible to take a sample and say this was taken from a shaft that hasn't been in operation for 10 years, therefore it must be legal. In practice, I think there's no way at all. Um, I think this gold is getting blended together and it's getting sold in fairly poorly regulated marketplaces, chiefly Dubai. My understanding is that a lot of this gold gets sold as jewelry, as gold coins, as gold bars, to people who are using it as gold was originally intended, which is a store of value. So it's entirely plausible that some of those bars, some of those coins, some of those jewelry pieces are ending up in the UK. Um, another interesting thing that's happened is since the Ukraine-Russia war, and sanctions being imposed on Russia, there has been a kind of move back to gold by many of the world's banks and institutions because gold is a way to circumvent sanctions. If you're, if you're cut off from the banking system and you're Russia and you've got a bunch of gold, you can find ways to turn that gold into cash. Um, and so some mining historians I've been speaking to lately are kind of watching this with some interest because potentially that's going to drive demand for gold from all over the place, including from South Africa's Zama Zama pits um, and everywhere else in the world where gold is mined in extremely exploitative, unsafe, poorly paid ways, Latin America, across the African continent, and, and so on. It all just becomes gold and it circulates freely. And uh, I think it will continue to do so. And finally, what impact is all of this having on the South African economy? Ramaphosa wants to crack down on this more. He has his Operation Prosper. What is his plan to crack down on this? And is any plan really likely to have any impact unless you eradicate the source, um, the economic instability, you create more jobs, better wages, and you and you remove the incentive that so many people have to to work in such an incredibly dangerous environment in the first place. Yeah, or just close the mine shafts. You know, like it, it's kind of shocking that so many companies were able to walk away from these enormous open tunnel networks without being required to rehabilitate them. That's kind of another story. Um, so as I understand it, the South African government has mobilized troops to stem the Zama crisis. I don't think it has a great chance of succeeding. Um, politically, what's going on in South Africa right now is there's kind of a race to the bottom with rival parties kind of trying to out-xenophobe each other. There's a massive anti-Black, anti-African xenophobic kind of uh, political dividend to be exploited by cynical politicians. And Zama Zamas, because many of the miners um, and some of the bosses are from these neighboring African nations that once sent migrants to the 
legal South African gold industry have become this kind of visible manifestation of the ills that people seek to attach to foreign Africans in South Africa. You know, South Africa is the most advanced economy in the region. People flock here much like people flock from Africa to the UK or Europe or the United States. Um, the root causes to me seem unchanged. Uh, we've had several high-profile clampdowns over the past few years. There was a mass shooting a couple years ago uh, that gained a lot of attention. I think it was last year. There was a mass rape that was attributed to some Zamas. Uh, I happened to visit the community where that episode happened after it was reported and had been in the news. And behind the tin shacks were just dozens and dozens and dozens of Zamazamas processing gold ore from guys who had been down in the mines that very day. One day later, the ruling African National Congress organized a protest march against Zamazamas, which is kind of a crazy thing to do because they're in charge. It's sort of their job to prevent this from happening. And uh, the township where I was became a sort of xenophobic war zone for a couple of days. Houses were burned, people were beaten up, a few people died. Um, in terms of the impact on South Africa's economy, that's kind of difficult to answer. Gold has completely declined as, as a foundation of the South African economy. But in places where it's declined, the illicit gold economy does prop up uh, an absolute lack of economic alternatives. So Zamazamas spend money on accommodation. They buy food underground. Uh, they buy cars. They, their money goes into the cash registers of struggling businesses from small mom and pop to the informal economy to major supermarket chains. So when Zamas get knocked out, as they were in Valcom through this very expensive and well-coordinated clampdown that was organized by the mining house who still operates there, uh, the formal economy takes a massive knock. Yet at the same time, the communities where Zamazamas are entrenched do witness staggering levels of violence sometimes. Often Zama on Zama, you know, it's not like directly affecting everyone all the time, but there'll be gun battles in these kind of mining wastelands and dead bodies will be found and, uh, massive, massive, massive levels of corruption. Um, so it's kind of complicated, right? But I don't think that sending the troops in and sort of bashing the heads around of the guys at the very bottom in a country that has such high corruption and such high unemployment and so much damn gold in the ground, um, I don't see that making a huge difference. I'd, I'd like to be wrong, but um, to me, this stuff seems kind of more systemic and, and deeply embedded than that. Kevon, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, why not back The Bunker on Patreon? For just £3 a month, you'll get access to all of our episodes first, ad-free, and the chance to get your hands on our exclusive merch. Perhaps more importantly, you'll be helping us keep independent, free-thinking journalism alive. I'm Dipo Fallian. Thanks for listening. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? 
And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Depot Fallujan. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. Bunker is a Podmasters production.